Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Obligations of Memory podcast. I'm Jeffrey Geisner for the Jewish Culture and Holocaust Remembrance Group on Facebook and YouTube. And I'm proud to have Rosette uh, with me, uh, Rudman, Rosette Rudman from Toronto, who's going to share her family story with us uh, for the next uh, few episodes. And welcome, uh, Rosette, from, uh, uh, to the podcast. And let's start by having you tell us a little bit about your um, parents, and you have a unique set of uh, stories, so I'm going to let you surprise everyone with how unique they are, and uh, so let you start. Go ahead. Okay, thank you so much for this incredible opportunity, first of all. Um, everybody's story is unique, but my story is um, wound up with the Holocaust very intricately because my mother and my aunt's lives can't be really separated out because of their war experience, so I grew up with uh, not only my parents, but my aunt and my uncle and their uh, two boys who were 10 years older than me. We lived as one family. I did not know that I was an only child for many, many years. And I thought everybody had these aunts and uncles who were incredibly involved in their life. So let me tell you a little bit about this. My dad is from Radom, Poland, which was quite a large center. Uh, it was north of Warsaw. And he came from a family with three children. He was, they were very poor. And uh, he had just hater sort of education. His life really came to an end on September 1st, 1939, when the Germans invaded Poland. And he was forced into um, slave labor. And for several years, he was manually uh, tearing apart roads and rebuilding them so that the German artillery could have a smoother surface to continue their invasion of Europe. He also uh, was in Radom as a ghetto, but he was also in Pionke and Sachsenhaus in concentration camps where he was liberated from uh, by the Russians in uh, late uh, April 1945. He returned home to Radom and he found that his uh, mother and younger brother and sister had made it through Auschwitz, but that his father had died in the very last days of a death march in April. Um, life in Rodham was hell. The Polish people were not happy to see the Jews back. The government did nothing to support them. And they decided to make their way to uh, the um, American zone. And they ended up uh, in Germany in Ferenwald DP camp. And they were there from about 1945 till early 1948. Uh, they, while they were there, they made contact with my grandmother's uh, sister who had emigrated to Canada before the war and she provided them with papers. And they arrived in February 1948 in London, Ontario, a, a small university town. It's best known for Labatt's breweries, if anyone knows that make and uh, University of Western Ontario. So that's, that's how my father ended up in Canada. My mother and her younger sister were born in Slovakia in a, a village, not even a town. It had 40 families, 10 of whom were Jewish. And um, they had a very comfortable existence. Uh, the name of the town was Kapushani Pripreshova. So it was Kapushani before the town of Preshov, which was the larger Jewish center. They had a good life there. They were very comfortable. My grandparents owned a farmland. Um, 
a forest and a slaughterhouse where people from all over Slovakia came to kill their livestock. So it was very comfortable. They got along well with their neighbors. Things started going south in 1939 as well, but it didn't really get bad until 42. My mother was the um, oldest daughter, but the third child out of six. How old, and, how old was your mom at that time? Uh, when, when the, uh, in March of 42, she was 21 years old. And she had um, two older brothers, a younger brother, and then two younger sisters. But I just wanted to tell you that my mother was the dutiful daughter. Um, she helped her mother. She uh, guided her father around because he was blind due to diabetes. She was a, just a very pleasant, amicable child. Um, her younger sister, my, the aunt who was so influential in my life, was 17 at that time, and she was a whippersnapper. Uh, and thank God for it, because she saved my mother, who was four years older than her and her younger sister, so many times in Auschwitz. And that's why my mother felt that she owed her life to her. Um, they, um, they were taken on the very first transport of Jewish women into Auschwitz in March 1942. They actually arrived there on March 26th. And that date becomes, um, shows up again in their history. Um, they, I think that they survived for a couple of reasons because they stuck together. The younger sister came about three weeks later, but my aunt was what I call the artful dodger of the camp. She was in places she wouldn't be. She made friends with the guard. She bribed people. I know of three occasions where she saved my uh, younger aunt's life by bribing guards and getting her out of barracks uh, when she heard that they were going to be liquidated. She also found good jobs for my mother. My mother was ready to die. My aunt was determined to keep them all alive. So she got her a job first in Canada but my mother didn't steal enough. So my aunt got frustrated with her. She said, if I'd been there, I could have taken a lot of clothes and hid them on me. Uh, but then she approached the office and said, my sister Ella has beautiful handwriting. And the Germans didn't have typewriters, but they love to keep lists. They like to be very accurate about what they were doing. And my mother, after a few months of working outside and then in Canada, ended up working for Dr. Mengele in the office. She was terrified of him. She said she never looked him in the eyes once. He was just such a disturbing figure. But because of that, she had an easier time. She got more rations, which she took back and shared with her sisters. Her hair wasn't shaved once she started working there. She was treated with slightly more dignity than the rest of them. Can I, My ask, aunt, can sure. I ask you to, uh, for our audience to explain what Canada Sure. Canada was where, when the girls were taken and when anybody was taken, they were told to pack a suitcase. The, the initial 999 girls actually thought that they were going to work in a factory to help the war effort. And um, so they packed good clothes, they packed jewelry, that all was immediately taken from them and warehoused in this large storage uh, unit that they called Canada. I, I believe the prisoners actually called it that. And um, things were sorted out. Clothes were sent back to Germany. Uh, precious things were saved for the Gestapo who were working in the camps. And 
they never saw their items ever again, but there were extra clothes. So um, when they got to the camps, they were stripped down, they were shaved, they were um, given Russian uniforms that were huge on them. So getting an extra pair of socks or getting an extra pair of underwear could save your life during those harsh winters. So it's really because of my aunt that the, the girls survived. In March of 1944, they had the opportunity to, to go on, a, on a, a march. It was a three-week march to um, a munitions factory and work there. And they took that chance because they were terrified of what was going on. Do you know, and from, do you know the names of that munitions? I don't know. I don't know that uh, name. Uh, it starts with an H, um, Eisen Lichtenstein. That... I don't think so. That doesn't sound familiar to me. I might have it in, in some of my notes, but that doesn't sound familiar. Anyhow, they, um, they then were part, oh, can I, just to backtrack one more minute. Um, one of the, the most grotesque things about that first transport is that the Slovak government actually paid the Germans to take these 999 young women. They paid not only a, a head count, but they also paid for every suitcase that the girls took with them. And it was not an insignificant amount. But uh, Joseph Tizo had taken over and he was a big anti-Semite and he wanted to rid the country of Jews. And he thought, well, if I get rid of the women, there are no more Jewish babies. And nobody's going to make a big fuss over the fact that I'm getting rid of the girls because it's the boys that most family relied on uh, to make help with their livings. So that was, that was part of the German plan, but the Slovaks bought right into it and, and were working along with them. So that, that is a, a fact that still haunts me to this day. So, you're, um, so if I can kind of get sure. you. So your mother uh, is, survives the war with her sister with her sisters one sister, what, one sister. no no there's actually more to this story okay um okay. in so, in in early 1945 they ended up in west um Falica, porta westfalica and they were digging ditches there to try to stop uh, any artillery from being able to cross those lines and there was a Swedish diplomat by the name of Conta Fokke Bernadotte, who was the head of the Swedish Red Cross. And he was a Nazi sympathizer. And he wanted to aid the Nazi cause because they were already starting to uh, see that the end of the war was on the horizon. So he arranged with the Red Cross to give uh, the Nazis trucks that they needed. In exchange, he wanted to take a thousand Polish prisoners, uh, Christian prisoners, uh, and there weren't enough in this spot. So they sent some of the Jewish girls too. And they were, they were bargained for. There was a lot of negotiating back and forth. The girls didn't know what was going on. They were in an open field with um, Gestapo all around them with their, their machine guns pointed at them. And then all of a sudden they were told to go on a train. They got on a train, they were taken to Denmark and on May 1st, they were liberated in Denmark and they didn't actually believe that they were liberated. When they told them, get off the train, you're free. Nobody got off the train. They didn't get off the train until the Red Cross nuns came and physically 
escorted them to a restaurant and served them tea and food. And this is after three years of not being treated like a human. So it was an incredible day. They ended up in Malmo, Sweden, and uh, they were actually put into a quarantine uh, camp, which was a little unnerving since they had barbed wires around them once again, but um, that's where they were liberated. And, and my mother and her two sisters survived the war and they ended up living in Sweden for 18 months. Okay, and they're, so they're, how, how did they, let's take it further. How did they get, and I assume they're getting to, uh, how to, so the story about how they get to where, and I assume that's going to be Canada. Okay. So um, after 18 months, my, my aunt Edith, again, the, the whippersnapper, had seen a photograph of a very handsome young Slovakian man uh, when she was with his sister. And she said to them, I'm going to go back and find this man and marry him. So she went back to Czechoslovakia and then she sent for them. She was also a little worried. They had become friends with a family in Sweden, a non-Jewish family who had been incredibly kind to them. And I'm actually still in touch with family members. And, um, and so is um, my cousin. But they were a little bit worried that the son of the family was too interested in my Aunt Lily. So they said, let's go back. People know our name in Slovakia. Let's go home. And they found out their brothers had been killed. Their mother had been taken. And the three brothers, their father had died before this. And um, there was nothing there for them. So my Aunt Edith, if you want a cute story, um, found out that uh, this man named, um, uh, well, we knew him as Tom Vallow, but that wasn't his real name, uh, that he was a very good son and that his mother was sick and that he visited his mother every day after work in Kochese, which was a, a big town um, in the area. I don't know if you know, my mother was deported and her family from Kosice. Oh, really? So we're Lutzman. It's amazing. So, yeah. It's amazing. So keep, you're going to teach me more about my, my parents never spoke at all about their survival of Auschwitz. Uh, my mother and her two sisters, um, well, actually the six families were deported in 19, 19 six members were deported from Kosice in 1944. I'll take you a little bit, back from this, I don't, but my uh, great-grandfather opened in Kosice or built in Kosice the Gupa glass factory. It was a factory complex. Uh, it was very large, they were very well-to-do. My grandfather inherited it from my grandfather. And in 1941, um, the Nazis seized that Gupa factory. And that factory was then uh, 18,000 Jews from all around Kosice was then rounded up and put into Supported. the the Gupa uh, factory. Factory. Oh wow. So my my grandfather and obviously my mom and her three other sisters and her mother were in the Gupa factory before they were transferred to Auschwitz. And in May, how old how old were they? My mom was fifteen when she was deported. Okay. Magda, which was the baby, was eight. Her older uh, sis, middle sister was Hendy, and she was 18, and Edith was 21, and her, and her mother and father. And they were deported in May of 1944 to Auschwitz. 
So that, that first transport that my mother and one sister was on, the girls were 16 to, to 32. So it sounds like they might've been just under that age to avoid that first transport. But my, my Aunt Lily, who was 15, came on the like three weeks later. So yeah, they you may. Said, you said 19, they may, 1942. 1942. Yeah, yeah, my mom was 19, May of 1944. 44. So anyhow, back, back to my Aunt Edith. So she sat at this, at this woman's house visiting her. She knew the family just a little bit. And she waited until the man who ended up being my uncle came. And he was very taken with her. She was very lively. And he said, look, I'm going to date you, but I have papers to go to Canada in three weeks. You have to know this. I'll take you out for a good time. And he took her dancing. He took her to restaurants. And after three weeks, he asked her to marry him. And they spent a year more trying to get papers because of a, a little mix up with her name. But it was a, a it was a love story that was modeled for me. They, they were madly in love for 44 years till he passed away. So that's, they got back there. So he, after a year, he, uh, they emigrated to Hamilton, Ontario, which is a steel town, also with a university, McMaster University. And in 1948, they brought my mother over as a single woman. And um, after that, they brought the youngest sister over. She had already been married and had a child in Slovakia. So that's how we, they ended up in Canada. Okay, so um, let's, let's talk about, they're in Canada. Tell me a little bit about how they made their lives. And I'm going to be kind of focusing on your mother, but it seems like there's this sister. It's No, her. you can't separate them. Okay, it's impossible. I won't, I won't. So, so if I see your mother just bring your sister right into it. So how okay. did they, so, how well, did first they... of all, my, my mother and, and father got together because um, they were fixed up by a cousin. They said, come meet each other. You're both single, you're both alone. It was a purely a marriage of convenience. My aunt had told my mother, get a dog or get a husband, but get something, do something already. Um, and they agreed to get married, but my mother had one condition and that was she didn't want to bring children into the world. And my father said, fine, I don't care. Uh, what he didn't know was that my aunt and uncle and their two boys would move in with them within a couple of months of their marriage. And they, they started to create this uh, family of the four adults and the two boys. And uh, they worked incredibly well together. Everyone had a role to play. And initially, um, my aunt and uncle were still in Hamilton and my mother missed them terribly. So they, my father said, let them move to London and let's do something all together. So that's how they all moved in. We lived in one house. We had one business, one car. Um, well, how, let me say, since your mom didn't want to have any children, how did, how so did she took, she took, so my aunt actually said to her at one point, if I could do so much here in this country, if I didn't have these two children to look after. And my mother was working in a factory and hated it. And she said, I'll stay home and look after the boys and cook and clean and you go to work. So that's what happened. And they, they living as one family, they were economies of scale. They put away every penny that they made. They initially started peddling uh, fruits and vegetables off the back you, of a truck. How did you? I'm yeah. later. I'm later. I'm eight years into their marriage. Okay. 
but so um, they 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 built up. Um, they ended up uh, renting a stall in a marketplace, and then they they um, had fruits and vegetables there, and they became very successful. And uh, six of them living in a tiny little house got cramped, so they ended up they bought a bigger three-story house and they took in boarders. And so my mother not only took care of the children, but she took care of the boarders. She cooked and cleaned for them. And, um, and my aunt was out in the market. She, she bribed one of the officials to get a better stand. And we had one of the biggest stands in the market as it turned out. And um, my aunt really wanted a, a girl. She had these two boys but she had RH negative blood and it was incompatible with my uncles. And so she had numerous miscarriages and she was finally on bed rest with a pregnancy and she gave birth to a little girl and her name was going to be Rosette because that was after their mother, Miriam Razel. Rosette means little rose in French. Um, and that baby only lived a few hours. So they never actually named her. And unbeknownst to my mother, who was taking care of my aunt and was feeling really tired and going up and down these stairs of this um, three-bedroom house, um, the three-floor house, sorry, uh, she, was, she was just, I wish I could lie down like Edith was doing. And she had, was gaining weight. And she finally went to the doctor and he says, you're pregnant, but I have no idea when, when you're going to deliver. I have no idea how far along you are. So this was literally eight years into their marriage, I came along. And um, my mother happily shared me with my aunt and uncle. And uh, she had a very hard delivery. Uh, and during the first three weeks of my life, my aunt took care of me. My mother didn't touch me. And the first time that my aunt had to go to a Sunday school event with her boys, my mother was scared. She didn't know what to do with me. <laughs> so I was de facto my aunt and uncle's child. I went on holidays with them. My parents didn't like to go places. My uncle was the one who would take me out every year and discuss what my plans were for school. And to be honest with you, my uncle really modeled for me what it was to be a mensch. And my aunt, not some, she modeled for me how to be a fighter, but she, she was the one who really formed who I was because had it been up to my mother, I, she would have let me just do what I want and be a quiet, gentle child. My aunt schlepped me to ballet classes uh, three or four times a week, made me take piano classes, made me get my ears pierced, made me get contact lenses, made me learn to drive. And as a segue into our next session, um, she told me I needed to go to Toronto, which was the larger Jewish population for university to get my degree. Okay, so before we go, now, before we go there, I wanna ask a few questions. As for you, how was it growing up in what is really unusual, a four survivor home? So and what are the differences? What are the, and, and what did you learn from that experience? Now you had your, uh, your mom's sister, but obviously no grandparents, right? I actually had one grandparent that survived the war. My father's mother did, but she ended up marrying a man who took her to Northern Ontario. So I, I never really saw her. But the interesting thing about London is it being such a small community, about a hundred survivors ended up settling there. And we had 
a wonderful community. Like uh, it was rich. I, and I had all these pseudo aunts and uncles. I knew that they weren't my real blood relatives, but I knew they were there for me. I, their kids were like my cousins. And I have to tell you that it was actually a very positive experience. Everybody had accents. Not many people had grandparents, like you said. Uh, a lot of women had tattoos on their arms that they kept covered up like my mother did. I didn't know that we were different from the rest of the world. Um, London was very good to them, except that there was a division between the old Londoners who came pre-war and who were much more assimilated and the, the greenies like we were. So the greenies were much more outwardly observant. And um, I don't know if we were an embarrassment to them, but we didn't really care. We had such a vibrant community among us. And were and, you, and, you religious? Um, so my aunt was totally, became totally atheist. I think she would have anyhow. My uncle puts filling on every day. He went to shul. Uh, every, every Saturday, every Yontif, and um, my father was in between. My father became more observant as he came when he came to Toronto and was was um, uh, retired. But he he had to work six days a week at our store, so he didn't have the opportunity to go to shul on Saturdays. But he said that London London was a good place for them. There was there was a little anti-Semitism. Um, the university had a quota, only 1% of their students could be Jewish at that time. And there was a very famous hunt club that would not take Jewish members. And one of our friends was the first Jewish member in the 1970s, if you can believe that. So, but so, otherwise they did well in London. They lived the Canadian dream. So your parents and your aunts and uncle, did they come from um, the Shoah with any trauma? that was demonstrated to you that you could acknowledge and understand, you know, and present? Now I can identify it. I definitely can. And so and for instance, my aunt- Can you with us what, it, what you saw? Sure. So my aunt suffered, uh, my, the two younger sisters suffered from depression, but my aunt actually underwent shock therapy in the 1960s and and she was, they diagnosed her as bipolar, but really it was PTSD. She was 17 when she went to the camps and she steered these other lives for, the, for three years in the camps. Um, so she, she had manic depress depression. She would, if she was on a high, she would make 400 blunces and 500 rogalach. So it wasn't so bad. <laughs> <laughs> when she was in a high, when she was in a low, she would be mad at my mother. My mother always understood, and I would say, "Mommy, why aren't you mad at her?" She said, "This is just her depression, whatever." Um, so that was the most glaring thing when I think back to it. But I lived it, and but other people had depressions. We had a young boy live with us for a month when his mother was was hospitalized because of depression, and she was another survivor. And that, that boy never forgot that. He, he, till the day my aunt died, he took, if, if she needed something, he took care of it. Um, my, my father, he had to, and I, I noticed this more in his later years, he had to have a fully, fully stocked pantry. 
um, of things that he actually ended up having to throw out because they all expired because he didn't use it. But, you know, there was one day he came home with five, I can't believe it's not butter tubs, huge tubs. And I had to sneak them out of the house to the various caregivers uh, because I didn't want them to go bad because they only had a, like a, a week's uh, data left on them. So let's talk, My, let's talk a little bit about um, you are getting older, you're about to leave the nest. Uh, yeah. and you're going to, uh, you indicated that you're going to university. Right, it? yes. So you didn't let me finish this. My aunt said, you've got to go get a degree. And what I think is she meant an MRS degree not a university degree. <laughs> she wanted me to find a spouse because there was no one really in London. And uh, they were a bit frustrated with me that it took me a little while to actually find someone. But um, I, it was a two hour train ride from Toronto. I went home frequently. We, we stretched the umbilical cord. How did, your parents, how did your par all four of your parents feel about you leaving the nest? Were they worried about you? So my mother, aunt and uncle thought it was a great idea because they wanted to broaden my Jewish horizons. My father offered me a car to stay in London. <laughs> and, and to be honest with you, I could have walked to the gates of the university in a half an hour from my house. Um, but most of the people I grew up with in London from the Jewish community ended up coming to Toronto just because the community was so small. So you actually went um, to the university, which university was it? Of Toronto. Oh, Toronto, okay. Uh, Toronto. And that was something, that was actually something that was a little bit, uh, I, I had thought about going into dance to be a dance teacher. And I was accepted at another university for that. And my uncle on one of our, our conversations um, said to me, you know, you can always dance recreationally. You need a profession in your hands that nobody can take away from you. And that was glaringly a lesson from the Holocaust because he he was a bookkeeper and so he was able to do the all the business aspects of what they did here in in Canada so that was very glaring my mother um she didn't she didn't like being the center of attention and we never flaunted our Judaism and and to this day I still I don't I don't usually wear a Magin David um, I am terrified of large Jewish crowds. We recently, a couple of weeks ago, had the UJAA walk for Israel. I can't do that. I get nervous going to shul for Rosh Hashanah. And even in London, which only had about 200 families at that time, I feel like we're sitting targets. And, and okay. I break out. We're going to talk about that, but we've reached the first half okay. hour of that our- That went by fast. I know it does. So I want to thank- uh, Rosette for joining us, or she's going to come right back and continue this conversation. We're, we're on the um, Obligations of Memory podcast for the Jewish Culture and Holocaust Remembrance Group on Facebook and, and YouTube. I'm Jeffrey Geisner. Come on back. We'll talk more with Rosette. Thanks. Perfect.